If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you please open up to the book of 1 John? And today we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4. If you are new to us and new to the Bible, uh, I want to encourage you to, to really have something to read, uh, whether you brought a Bible with you or you've got it on your phone. And uh, here's your tip, especially if you're new to the Bible, your tip for finding 1 John. Easiest way is go to your table of contents in your Bible and you're looking not for the first John listed in the New Testament. That's the Gospel of John. You're looking for the John with the number one in front of it. First John, it's near the end of the Bible, closer to the book of Revelation. And uh, the big number is going to be our chapter. We're in chapter four. And then the smaller numbers are the verses. And we're going to be looking at verses one through six together this morning. How do you know if a message is true or false? Uh, that's a question that our church staff has to answer together about once or twice a year thanks to some really lazy and unimaginative scammers. Uh, a couple of times a year, a scam hits the church and it works like this. Uh, someone, uh, presumably from a different country, uh, gets on our website and looks at who the name of the pastor is. And then they create a fake email account uh, using my name. It's something really long and preposterous, always something like Pastor Reverend Cody Busby, South Shore Baptist Church at gmail.com. And they take that fake email address and they scour our website for other email addresses. Normally it's staff. Back in the day it would have been more ministry leaders. Uh, and then they email all of those people from the fake Cody email account and they say, hey, I need some help. Could you go buy some Amazon gift cards for me today? Now, when that email lands, what happens is I get text messages or I get a call. Uh, one Saturday morning, I had people show up at my front door. Hey, are you okay? What's going on? I got this email from you. And I say, okay, well, show me the email. And the email is in very broken English with very poor punctuation. And I, my first thought is, is that how I email? Is that how I... Is this what I sound like when I talk? Man, I got I, I to gotta clean my act up. This is a mess. Uh, but uh, together we sort through and we figure out what it is. So far the scammers have been unsuccessful. We've, we had one really close call. Uh, a staff member who almost spent a lot of money on some iTunes gift cards of all things. Um, but so far they've been unsuccessful because we're able to look at the message and tell whether it's from the real Cody or the fake Cody. Uh, you can tell by the email address. You can tell by the broken English, I think. Uh, you can tell by the content. It's weird, it's strange, it's not me. How do you tell a true message from a false message? That question also has implications in our spiritual lives as well. There are many different voices around us with many different Truth claims many different religious messages. Some of those voices come from world religions. Some come from Christian cults. Some come from a blending of Christianity with some other spiritualism. Some of those voices come from the culture in which we live. And they're wrapped up in packages that we might actually find quite, quite appealing. But the question remains, what's true? What is right? How do I know a true teacher of God from a false teacher? And that's the question John answers for us today. It's the same question he answered for his own church. 
If you've been with us these past few weeks, you, you know the story I'm about to tell. The, the history sets the stage for what comes in these six verses. John's church had suffered a horrendous schism. John talked about it back in chapter 2. There he described a group within the church that came to the conclusion that belief in Jesus is not essential for salvation. They rejected the message about Jesus, the message that had been delivered by John, and they left. They gathered together and they split the church. They took off. It was not a peaceful parting. Those who remained behind in the church were deeply troubled. It seems that one of their most pervasive questions was, what if the group that left was actually correct? How can we know that we have the truth? How can we tell a true messenger of God from a false teacher? So John helps us this morning by giving us a way of discerning whether or not a message is a true message from God, whether a teacher is a true teacher from God. John equips us so that we can identify false teachers and also make our lives or live our lives more aligned with the true message about Jesus. And so my purpose today is this, it's uh, to equip you with a tool that will help you identify false teachers and their messages. And along with that, align your life with the true message of Jesus Christ. So John gives us a three-part test for evaluating whether a message is from God or not. Follow along with me as I read 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. John writes, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming. Even now, it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Anyone who knows God listens to us. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we know the spirit of truth in the spirit of deception. So John's concern this morning is with false teachers and identifying the message that is true versus a message that is false. And he gives us a three-part test for discerning these messages and the messengers. Three-part test. The first part of that test is this question, does the message exalt Christ? Someone puts a truth claim in front of me. Someone tells me this is a word from God. Someone says, I've got something to say, and I'm representing God. Does this message exalt Jesus? Absolute, essential, number one question to ask when we're evaluating whether or not a person is a true or a false teacher. So John begins by telling us in verse 1, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God. You... Christian, you are a spiritual investigator. It is not my sole task to tell you these are approved teachers and these are not. You, as you go through life and as you hear different messages, you have to be the discerner. You are the spiritual investigator. John says, test the spirits. Now, what does he mean by spirits? 
Well, John is uh, telling us that there is a spiritual power behind all of these messages and the people who speak them. That spirit might be the spirit of God, or according to verse 3, it could be the spirit of the Antichrist. And so when John tells us to test the spirits, he's not telling us to set up some sort of this voodoo metaphysical test where, where we're searching out invisible things. But rather, we test the spirits by looking at the evidence in front of us in the form of people and the message that they peddle. In simple words, the content of your message measured against the content of the gospel will tell me whether you represent the Spirit of God or the Spirit of the Antichrist. Now, here's the next question. What does John mean by Antichrist? Well, we first came across this word back in chapter 2, verse 18. And just in case you weren't here that Sunday, you need to understand very clearly what John means by this word. When John uses the term antichrist, he is not referring to that great end times nemesis of God and his church, who's also called the beast in Revelation chapter 13. That's not how this term is used in 1 John. When John uses the term Antichrist, he's speaking of those people who teach religious messages that reject Jesus. Those people and their messages are Antichrist. And what kind of spirit do you suppose the spirit of the Antichrist is? Well, John doesn't leave us guessing throughout this letter. He's given us information, letting us know how awful this particular spirit is. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, John calls that spirit darkness without light. In chapter 1, verse 8, it deceives. In chapter 2, verse 4, it lies. In chapter 2, verse 15, it is without love. In chapter 2, verse 17, it is dying. In chapter 3, verse 4, it is lawless. In chapter 3, verse 8, he just calls it clearly. It is the devil. And so, Christian, you are commanded to test the messages that come your way to determine if this is a true teacher or a false teacher, if this is a message from God or not from God. How do you do that? John tells you what to do. Well, now he tells you how to do it. Verses 2 and 3. He says, this is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. The simple question is, what do they do with Jesus? Make a truth claim, claim to have authority, claim to tell me what truth is and is not. The big question for us is, what do we do with Jesus? And so John says the ultimate test, the primary test, is this question in verse 2. Does it confess, does this message confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and is from God? theological word for that phrase that Jesus came in the flesh from God, the theological word is incarnation. And we normally think of incarnation at Christmas time, right? But John has in mind here more than just Christmas or the virgin birth of Jesus. He has in mind all that Jesus came to do at his incarnation. John's message about Jesus, the apostolic message about Jesus is that Jesus is God who took on flesh and died for our sins and three days later rose from the dead and then he ascended to heaven and one day he will physically, visibly return for his church. 
the apostolic message about Jesus is the standard by which we measure every other religious claim. When religious messages fail to meet this standard, then we can say confidently what John says in verse 5, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So the primary test for every religious message, every religious messenger is what does this say about Jesus? If the message does not teach the apostolic message about Jesus, then don't believe it. Don't, just reject it. There's no need to reconcile it. No need to find common ground. If it's a religious message that rejects Jesus Christ, then it is a lie and it's falsehood and you want nothing to do with it. The truth claims of every world religion, every cult, every spiritualist, every cultural commentator, every pastor, every church, every person must be measured against the gospel. If you don't have a church home and you're looking for a church or maybe you're just here temporarily um, for, for whatever reason, you have to evaluate your church, this church and every church by this standard. Does that church give me the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's the standard. That's the standard you have to evaluate me against every single Sunday. Is Cody giving me the message of Jesus Christ? If I don't, you need to correct me. And if I won't be corrected, then you need a new pastor. Does this church give me the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's the standard that's most important. Now, it doesn't matter at the end of the day what a person's credentials are. A person who speaks a message that is anti-Jesus. They may make an appeal to their accomplishments or their popularity or, or some other thing about them. But credentials cannot make a false message a true message. And this is the same thing that the Apostle Paul argued as well in the book of Galatians Chapter 1, verses 7 through 8, you'll remember these words from Paul. He says to the church in Galatia, There are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. What's the number one biggest way, the most important test for evaluating whether a person or a message is from God? What do they do with Jesus? If they reject Jesus, if they reduce him, if they redefine him, then that message is false and not to be believed. That's just one part of a three-part test. The second part is this. Does the message glorify Christ's victory? So you are the spiritual investigator. John's told you in verse 1, test the spirits. And so we're going to first evaluate what does this say to me about Jesus and salvation. Second, what does this say to me about Christ's victory, specifically his victory at the cross. So in verse 4, John begins to articulate the difference between those who are from God and those who are of the world. He says in verse 4, you are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And so John says to his readers, you have conquered them. You're from God. You've conquered them. Who are the them? we got to get this right. Cannot misidentify the them in this case. Who has been conquered by John's church, these little children of God? I take John to be referencing the spirits of verse 1. 
or the spirit of the Antichrist in verse 3. He's not talking about flesh and blood. He's not setting up warfare against the little children of God and the children of the world. What he's saying is that in this spiritual battle, those who confess that Jesus Christ came from the Father in the flesh, they have overcome the spirit of the Antichrist. That's who the them are. How can John possibly say that, that these small Christians have conquered these Antichrist spirits? Is it because that church has big muscles? Is it because they've got a great strategy? Is it because they hold worldly power and worldly position? Is that what gives them leverage over the spiritual powers of the world? No. They've overcome because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Now wait just a minute here. Just, John, what are you talking about? Who is the one who is in me? The one who's greater than the one who is in the world. Well, according to chapter 3, verse 24, we read it just last week, it's God the Holy Spirit. And last week we learned that God the Holy Spirit in us is greater than the condemning voice of our hearts. And now John tells us he's greater than the deceitful voices of the world. And I wonder if this message of overcoming, of conquering, does that sound familiar to you at all? Well, if you've read the Gospel of John, then yeah, there's something here very familiar. The words of Jesus on the night before he was crucified, one of the many beautiful things he said to his disciples, is found in John chapter 16, verse 33. And Jesus said this to them. He said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous I have conquered the world. So Christ's victory is your victory. And how does he conquer the world? He conquers the world by his death. He conquers every anti-God, rebellious spiritual message and spirit by his death and resurrection. He died and rose again. That conquers death and hell. And when you placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, when you confess that he is God the Son come from the Father, well then you share in His victory. In one sense, it's a victory that awaits because you're not in heaven yet. But in another sense, it is a, it's a victory that is already yours. It's here and now because Christ died and rose again and you've put your trust in Him and you are His child. The message of truth, the message from God exalts the victory of Christ at the cross in our union with him in his victory. What's the alternative? Well, the alternative is that the false teacher will lower Christ's death on the cross so that it becomes merely an example for us to follow as we pursue victory according to our own definitions. So victory is redefined as some uh, overcoming some social or personal ill um, the cross is redefined. No longer is the cross the place where our salvation is won or where sin is dealt with decisively, but it becomes merely a story that enables victory. It's a story that calls us to work hard to right the things that are wrong. And there's no shortage of examples of people who attach the name of Jesus to their cause to give it some sort of legitimacy. And in doing so, they delegitimize the cross of Jesus Christ. 
And so this is where you have to be discerning and you have to test the spirits. What does this person say about the victory of Jesus Christ at the cross? There is a difference between Jesus as the hero of your story and Jesus as the mascot of your story. Jesus as a mascot, that's no good to anyone or anything. But Jesus as victor, as hero, as the conquering king, that's the message that gives life to people who are dead in sin. And so there's a part of the test we want to run these messages through. What does it say to me about Jesus? Does it exalt him as Savior? Does it glorify him as the victor? The third and final part of this test is this question, does the message give life to others? Does it give life to others? In verses 5 and 6, John continues to identify distinctions between those who preach the true message of Christ and those who speak an anti-Christ message. In in verse 5, he tells us the origin of those messengers. He says they are from the world. Next, he identifies the origin of their message. Therefore, what they say is from the world. And then he identifies their audience. And the world listens to them. John uses the term world in different ways from phrase to phrase. But in this instance, they're all negative. They're all representative of hearts and minds that are turned against God. In contrast to that, in verse 6, John says, we are from the world, the church, those who have Christ as their Savior. We are from God. Anyone who knows God listens to us. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. They're from the world. We're from God. The message that they speak is a message from the world. The message we speak is a message from God. He gave it to us through the apostles. Those who listen to the message from the world are from the world themselves. Those who listen to the message from God are those who are from God. They know God. God knows them. Now, there's a way that we could use verse 6. We could twist it in order to justify really awful, arrogant behavior by Christians. So, we could say, look, according to this, these verses, verses 5 and 6, if you agree with me, you're okay. If you don't agree with me, then you belong to the devil. I'm right and you're wrong. We're going to huddle up in our little Christian group against those who are outside, even against the Christian group. And in doing so, we exude an arrogance, a pride that is unbecoming of people who belong to a crucified Savior. That way of thinking and acting is not only dumb, it's really dumb because it is not Christ-like. In this world, there are for sure two competing messages. There's the message of the Antichrist, right? The message also of the crucified Christ. One message leads to death and darkness. The other leads to life and light. And the message of the gospel that gives life and light has to go out to the world. It has to be a message that's delivered. The gospel is inherently a word to be proclaimed. It's not a word that huddles us and builds walls against the world. It's the word that rescues the world from death and darkness as God's people speak it to hearts that are hurting and broken by sin. And so what I take John to be saying here when he says 
some listen to the world, some listen to God, is not that we should just focus on each other and forget the world. Rather, we should advance into the world with this beautiful message about Jesus Christ. Because there are some whom God knows who will hear and listen and believe. We have to go. This passage does not call us to build compounds to keep the world out. It calls us to advance in the power of God the Holy Spirit in us to rescue men and women from every nation by the gospel of Jesus Christ. John told us just a a few chapters earlier that Christ died not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. The whole world. So that means people from every nation, every tribe, Every ethnicity, they have to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it begs the question of of me and you, what kind of message are we speaking? Do you speak as one indwelt by the spirit of truth? Do you speak the message of the gospel so that some can hear and believe? My prayer is that we would mimic Jesus who came to sinners with words of compassion and salvation. We find in Jesus such incredible depths of mercy Remember he made a tax collector his disciple? Remember that he went specifically to go see a demon-possessed man who had been chained and banished outside of civilization? Do you remember that one time he was at a dinner with the religious elite and he allowed a prostitute to anoint his feet with her perfume and her tears? This woman met with contempt from the others at the table, but she heard Jesus say, your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you, go in peace. His harshest words were for those who rejected him, those religious leaders who were anti-Christ. But he showed compassion even for them, so much so that it was two members of that elite group who took his dead body off the cross. Now, see, you you thought all morning long that that we've been talking or warning against messages from outside the church. But don't miss those who come as wolves in church clothing. We are commissioned to call people to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the message the world has to hear. I don't understand Christians who we give a platform to yell anger into the atmosphere in the name of Jesus to decry every social ill and human ill and then to use Jesus as their mascot for what they have to say and do. I don't understand what they're so angry about. I don't understand why we would give those people our money to buy their books or continue their program, whatever the thing is. What I do understand is that all of us in this room, we've experienced the incredible mercy of Jesus Christ. We are people who deserve much, much less than what Christ has given us. And he has shown us love and grace abounding. And because of our experience at the cross, we are compelled by Christ, commissioned by Christ, to take his message into the world because there are those who will listen and those who will believe. How can we tell if a message is about God or not? How can we tell if a messenger is a true teacher or a false teacher? Well, John's given us this three-part test this morning. Does the message exalt Jesus? Does the message glorify Jesus as victor? Does the message bring life to those who hear? 
So what's the result when you run your life or the messages in your life through that test? I wonder if, if you might be influenced by anti-Jesus messages. Or, or Are you a Christian whose values reflect what's valuable to the world more so than Christ? Are you a Christian whose anger and vitriol reflects the darkness of the world rather than the light of Christ? Have you considered what happens if you don't take John's test seriously? What will happen is you will be driven by every headline and by every yelling voice that tickles your ears. And you could very well lose grasp of the truth of Jesus and be deceived. So, so what are you to do when you realize that the world around you has begun to influence you negatively? Uh, when you've begun to give space in your mind and in your heart to messages that are anti-Jesus. What do you do? Well, you do exactly what John and the other disciples did whenever they made the same mistake. The story is found in Matthew chapter 16, starts in verse 13. Even though the disciples had been traveling with Jesus, walking with Him, listening to Him, seeing His miracles, they still struggled to believe. Their understanding of Jesus was still corrupted by competing messages. Two of the most popular messages in that day came from a group called the Pharisees, another group called the Herodians. And they had anti-Jesus views of God and the world. Those views impacted the disciples. And so here's what Jesus did. He took them on a long walk, a very long walk, to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi was a very non-Christian, well, not non-Christian, it was non-Jewish, it was non-moral town. It was a town dedicated to a Greek god named Pan. There was this huge rock face, and at the base of this rock face was a temple to the god Pan. And you worshipped Pan in salacious, gross ways. Surrounding the temple carved into the face of this rock were all these niches with statues to all these different Greek gods. And then to the side was this cave that a, a freshwater spring came out of. And the, the story was that this was one entrance to Hades, to the underworld. Jesus took his disciples from Galilee, walked them all the way up to Caesarea Philippi to ask them one question. Jesus stands in front of his disciples, the temple of Pan behind him, all the statues to false gods behind him, a gateway to Hades behind him, and he asks them this question, who do people say I am? They answered, well, some people say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead, or maybe you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Okay, what about you? Against this backdrop... Every feasible God carved into the rock face behind me. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered for the group. And he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, well done, Simon, son of Jonah. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Against every competing voice, every competing message, every God invented by man, the disciples make this claim, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus said in response, on you I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. 
So when the disciples were confronted with an anti-Jesus message, how did they respond? They responded in this moment by rejecting the competing messages and centering themselves on Jesus. They didn't do that because they were motivated by anger or hate towards other people. They did it really because they're motivated by the love of Christ, a love that sends them to the people around them. And so if you find that you're being influenced by worldly messages and false teachers, it's time to return to Jesus and the gospel. It's time for you to state once again in daily prayer and time in the word and in your own personal worship and in our corporate worship, Jesus Christ, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I'm going to center my life on you. I'm going to reject every competing message. I'm going to recognize the spiritual damage that all of these would do to me and to the people around me. I'm going to center myself on you, Jesus Christ, who has the message of life and light everlasting. That's the message that gave life to you. It's the message that will give life to others. And when your life is centered on Christ, you'll once again find the forgiveness and the rest that your soul needs. If you're not a follower of Jesus, well then... This test is also an important test for you to place in your own life. You see, we all live according to certain sets of values or beliefs or narratives. And the question you have to ask yourself in light of what the Bible says is this. Is the message that drives my life the message of Jesus Christ? The beliefs that your life is shaped around may be pragmatic, like they may get the job done. They may be comfortable. They may be good by some definition of good. But are they true? What do you do with Jesus? That's the big question. Let me tell you what Jesus did for you. Our sin against God is so massive that there's nothing we can do to make it right. What we deserve is to die for our sin. But God loves you even though you've sinned against him. And he sent Jesus, his only son, to die in your place for your sin. Jesus is God who took on flesh. He's holy God and a holy man all at the same time. And he did what only he could do, none of us could do. He died in our place for our sin so that we could be forgiven. On the cross, he suffers the penalty that our sin requires. And in exchange, he offers you his righteousness and his eternal life, his eternal blessings from the Father. He died on the cross. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And that means everything he said about himself and about salvation and about life is true. That's the true message because he really lived, really died, really rose again. He's really coming again as well. And because he loves you, he promises you this. If you will turn from your sin, turn from those messages that are opposed to him. And if you will center your life on him, trusting Christ to save you, to rescue you, he does all of that. He keeps that promise. Today, you can be his child. Today, forgiven forever. Today, given eternal life when you put your trust in him. What do you do with Jesus? My prayer, my hope is that today you would make him the Lord of your life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word to us. We need this help because the messages around us are convincing, they're persuasive, and we want to be in truth. So, Lord, humble our hearts that we would use this tool you've given us to discern wisely what is true and what is not true. 
Father, for each of us in this room, uh, those of us who have found that uh, non-Christ-exalting voices have been persuasive and appealing, Lord, lead us in our repentance away from those things. Give us courage and boldness, just like Jesus told us to, because he's overcome the world, knowing that his victory is our victory. God, I pray that as we align our hearts more and more with the gospel, that we would respond in humility, knowing that flesh and blood is never our enemy, but they are to be the targets of the life-saving, life-giving message about Jesus Christ. And while so many voices are calling us to be angry and to be fueled by hate, Lord, I pray that we would be persuaded by your voice that calls us to change the world with the love of Jesus Christ. God, I pray for friends in here that don't know you as their Savior. Today, would you press into them the seriousness of the question, what do I do with Jesus? And Lord, I pray that they would give their lives to him. They would trust in Christ as their Savior and find the hope they've desired their whole lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.